welcome, Legionaries, to episode 19 of Legion Cast. Today we're going to be talking about Fallen Angels. I am your host, Warwick, and going back to basics, joining me is Brandon. How you doing, buddy? Hello, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, Warriors of the First Legion. Welcome to Legion Cast. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to get back to basics. Just the two of us. Manipul and Paul are great, but they're really not that great. So, you know, happy to break this book down. It's one that I enjoy. I don't enjoy it as much as some of the others, but uh, we'll get into it. Yeah, I was kind of uh, going through it again this time around. I kind of forgot how much I enjoyed elements of this book. I think overall it lines up in like the okay or category of a lot of the heresy books, but we'll get into it as we talk about it. But there are certain aspects of it that I really enjoyed, so... We'll get to that in a little bit, but let's talk about a hobby update. I've got a lot going on on my end for once. Um, I feel like I've really, at the beginning of the year, we talked about our our year hobby goals, and I've basically blown through more than 3,000 points of my Ultramarines. It's not exactly the list I talked about at the beginning of the year, but I've easily gotten more than, I'll have to total it up, but I've gotten more more done than just the 3,000 points, and I'm really happy about that. What I've been working on this week, I, I'm a week behind on my hobby hobbying because I was sick for a week, and the weather here has been awful. We had a really nice 80-degree week for a little bit, and then it just nosedived back down to 32 degrees, so I was freezing. Anyway, enough of that, but... Um, what I've been working on are is getting to my basing. Maniple was busting my chops about my basing, uh, not on the last show, but uh, kind of off uh, off recording. And basically, what I've gotten down to is I watched a bunch of those tutorials of the the easy marble effect, where you you dry out and you stretch out like a, a hand sanitizing cloth, and it makes that web structure across the base. And I'd seen that a couple of times like, oh, that's really neat. I should try that sometimes. And I just kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And finally, I've tried it. And my first couple were kind of rough, but I think I can salvage the worst ones. And the ones that turned out good turned out great. They look amazing. The, uh, like I said, I've got some rough ones in there, but I think I can touch them up. And then I'll put some clear coat on those and I'm ready to actually start basing all my kind of parade-ready Imperium Secundus Ultramarines. I'm really looking forward to that. I've got a ton ready to go. I'm set up to work on a bunch more tomorrow. I'm actually uh, covered in white spray paint. I got white spray paint on my feet because I was sitting out in my lawn chair doing this out in my driveway. My neighbor pulled up. He's like, man, what do you got going on? Anyway, I've also... uh, I'm done with all my tactical Marines. I think I talked about coming to the end of that in the last session. But... I've got 20 Mark III Marines on order. They should be here later this week, I think. I think I ordered them off Amazon. Uh, I've also got five more Invictara Scissorane on order, so I can run a squad of 10 of them. I need to get some Thunderhammer bits for them. I think I found a guy on Etsy, but I'm also buying a 3D printer from Brandon here. If that shows up, I'll just figure out how to rock that on my own. And those Mark III Tacticals are going to be my Breachers. So I'm really excited for that. I'm also set to do some Assault Marines. That's on my to-do list. And I'm really looking forward to getting in all that. It's getting, the 3D printing is a whole new realm for me, and I'm looking forward to it. i got to do some rearranging here in my hobby space, but 
soon as I make room for that, it should be fun. Brandon, what do you got going on? Yeah, awesome. No, I'm uh, potentially picking up upgrading my 3D printer here soon, uh, which is why I'll be passing my old one off to Warwick so that he can jump in on the 3D printing game as well. But for me, it's been one word on my hobby table for the past couple of weeks, and that word is Titanicus. Um, I am getting geared up to be running a narrative Titanicus event down here uh, in Dallas. And I'm really excited for that. I've actually had a lot of interest generated. A lot of people coming out saying, oh, you know, I've got the models, but I didn't think anybody played. So I'm really excited to to get that going and kind of using that as a trial run to see if this is something I can turn into a more regular thing because Titanicus is a great game and combos in so well with the Horus Heresy um, theme, you know. Um, so I've been painting terrain as well as, you know, as kind of to take a break in between bouts of terrain to get tables ready. I've also been putting together and hopefully we'll soon start laying some paint down on my Legio Astorum Titans. So I've got those pretty well all built for the most part. Um, I've been sending Warwick pictures. I've been trying to do some dynamic posing with those because those Titan kits, uh, you wouldn't think it, but a lot of them are very, very dynamic models, um, which is something I really appreciate about that game. So all Titanicus in my house um but uh it's it's good i'm excited ready to uh to get this event rocking and then hop back on the show and talk about it very cool it's a pretty good update i i need to get one more reaver titan but other than that my ruptura maniple for lanascara is ready to go and i also need to finish my uh Warbringer, or sorry, Warmaster Iconoclast. I got the the big Godbreaker axe for that. I need to get that fitted and get that painted up. So I am also looking forward to that. Are you going to be painting that uh, that Warmaster as Lanascara, or will you be doing uh, yeah? So axe? the the Iconoclast will be for Lanascara because that's the melee build, and then I'm going to get the standard Warmaster for Osadax. Awesome. Yeah, I think the Iconoclast kind of shines on the trader side of things because they have so many movement type shenanigans and things like that. Although I am considering getting an Iconoclast for Legio Astorum because for on the Loyalist side, they are the speedy boys. So I, I think you should give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just rock up with one, see what happens. Yeah, could be fun. Could be terrible. We'll see. But yeah, so that's kind of what's on the on the hobby table there. Should we talk about some hobby news? Or more so lack thereof. Big sad. Yeah. So we got the uh we got the announcement of the librarian console. What do you think of this model, Warwick? So I had some thoughts on there. I think that uh the I, I like the model overall. The helmetless option reminds me of some artwork from it was either fit the fifth or sixth edition Space Marine Codex. 
there's a picture of a librarian with a great sword and he's got it in like this downward position, but he's got like this, the same kind of circlet on that the, the helmetless head option of this model has. And he is absolutely brain blasting a chaos boy with it, this psychic beam and it, it, they're like forehead to forehead. And it really reminded me of that. It kind of, kind of hit me in the member berries, so to speak, of kind of like our heyday when you and I were playing in high school all the time. So um, it definitely hit the nostalgia button for me. I like it. I'll, I'll probably end up picking one up because I don't have a heresy librarian yet. So yeah, I'm, I'm sold on it. I think it's a neat model. Disappointed. It's, it's resin. It's, it is resin, right? It's forge world. Model. Yeah, I believe it is resin. Yeah. That's a little disappointing, but I think we should just expect that at that, at this point. There is absolutely nothing on this model that I dislike, but nothing gets me excited. It is just the okayest model to me. Right, it is It is a librarian. He is the most librarianist librarian you will ever librarian. Well, actually, on that note, the, like, the one thing that kind of bugs me but is I, I like the big psychic hood, and the psychic hood on this one is very minimal. Um, it's got some, there's some stuff on the helmet that looks like it could be kind of an inbuilt psychic hood, and that was the idea there. And that's fine. Um, the other thing that kind of, and this is, the biggest of nitpicks is uh, my understanding was that librarians didn't paint their armor blue until that was dictated by the codex Astartes. So in their paint job, then putting the blue on the helmet and the shoulder pad, again, that's just me being nitpicky. There's nothing wrong with it. The, the paint job actually looks pretty good. I like some of the effects that they did on the armor and stuff. I mean, other than the yellow because Imperial Imperial fists are trash, but uh, <laughs> no, I, there's nothing, again, like I said, there's nothing wrong with it. There's just nothing that gets me excited. Right. Uh, I'm not totally sure on the... Uh, I'm not sure on the blue armor thing. I think you're right about that. Because at the, the Edict of Nikea, I thought they... All the librarians were just... They, they had to go back to being standard legionaries. So they didn't have any additional iconography on their armor or anything. So... Um, post Nikea, yeah. or I guess post when when everybody started to ignore the edict of Nikea, uh, I'm not sure what the the rule of thumb was up until the Codex Astartes. So that's that might be worth researching, but I'm not going to do it right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the other nitpick I have is from what I can tell, uh, it only comes with the four sacks. Yeah, that it swapping that weapon out is not going to be hard at all, but it right. just would have been nice if they had included some other power weapons. But yeah, that's, that's the librarian. Uh, the, I think the biggest part of this article uh, for me is that they said they're going to be taking a break from heresy Thursday for a while. Yeah, that is pretty disappointing. I'm annoyed that they didn't like, they didn't plan to have any filler here. Like maybe some kind of narrative to talk about. They're not, I, I guess they're not going to talk about books because they're doing the siege of Terra, but like they, they're not giving us anything. I mean, we, we already know that we're getting the, the siege of Chthonia, but how come they didn't put anything else in here for us? I mean, the last big update we got was the, resin vehicles and plastic sponsons and then a single librarian model and then nothing 
Yeah, well, and we have gotten one other thing since then. We got the uh, Imperialis Militia PDF. Um, so if you want to run regular dudes in the Horus Heresy, you have rules for that now, which is a good thing. Uh, having a more complete system, mm-hmm. uh, bringing those first edition armies in line with second edition. It's a good thing. It's just one that I'm like, okay, I don't play that. Um, glad that we have it, but it's right. not that exciting for me. I think it's a little annoying that, like, I'm glad that we're getting the material, but like, just give, give those guys a book. Why? Like getting a PDF is kind of disappointing. I don't know. I kind of like that they got a PDF. Their rules are free. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, the the article for that, they definitely had some cool conversions um, in there for how to make like some, you know, more heretical militia to serve as the armies of the war master. Traitor Guardio. Yeah, um, which I think is cool. Um, some really good stuff in there. But uh, yeah, I... I think that this, you know, this kind of stopping of the the regular flow shows that, you know, they kind of they had a a set of products that they were moving through, and I think we've just kind of reached the end of that list. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I don't know. I'm just I reminded of the the melee kit they put out a while back. I know we talked about it when it came out, but they said that more infantry support is on the way. And that was a couple months, a few months ago and no more word of it. They've said they're going to take a break from heresy news, melee armies. I kind of feel like that's a slap in the face to you guys, just because it, it feels like you're being ignored. It's like, okay, you got your melee arms, your chain swords. Now just go pack sand. Hopefully, I know I'm kind of doom pilling right there, but hopefully it's that's not the case. Yeah, well, and we still have the Warhammer Fest announcement, which honestly, if they came out with upgrade kits and that's all they had for Heresy at Warhammer Fest, I would say that was a successful Warhammer Fest for Horus Heresy. Upgrade kits more in line like the the support and heavy weapon upgrades. Yeah, not, plastic, not kits. resin mm-hmm. blister packs with five sets of weapons. Or five yes, weapons. exactly. That that was the big kick in the pants for for that announcement was you're going to get five chain swords. That's yeah, it. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't even think that's out yet. No, I don't even think we've seen a pre order for that. Yeah. I'd have to I'd have to double check, but I don't think we have. And I know certainly uh, our other co host Paul was not excited at all for that because. It doesn't. It didn't have anything that he needed. I think he needs chain axes, right? And same with World Eaters yeah. players. Like, ugh, man, they really dropped the ball there. Yeah, I agree. But uh, we'll see how things go from here. Hopefully, you know, maybe they take it slow for a bit for until after Warhammer Fest. But then maybe we uh, we start to pick up again with you know some some more support on. Uh, some things that uh, the game really needs. Um, let's talk about, uh, since we talked so much about Titanicus in the hobbies um, table section, uh, can we talk about that for a little bit? Because uh, we got some new releases for Titanicus, and this doesn't happen very often. You want to talk about the new conversion beamers, don't you? 
I do want to talk about conversion beamers. They look pretty sick. I remember uh, completely destroying you with one in 5th edition, 6th edition? Yeah, that sounds about right. One of those editions. I used to take one on a Master of the Forge all the time, and Brandon hated it. I just hated your army in general. It actually, it's cruel justice to me now that the Vindicator is pretty bad in Heresy, because I got just wrecked by the Vindicator so many times in 5th edition 40k that I hate that thing. Oh, I Uh, loved it. There... Warwick's Space Marine Vindicator has many tally marks on it, and many of them are from me. But I have the last laugh because my Titans have many tally marks on them, and many of those are from Warwick. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> conversion Beamers. So, I, I'm excited about this. Any Titanicus support is exciting to me um, because they just, it, to me, it feels like they nail it for the most part every time the one that i'm less excited about and i want to see the rules for before i completely can it is the the warhound um conversion beamer if it's got draining on it it's out it's just gone for me just because their reactor track is so short exactly i I can see that i mean i'm i'm a lot more willing to roll the dice on on my reactor table than you are but mm-hmm. um i i can totally see it well here here's my concern though is you're you're more willing to roll the dice my thing is i want to if if i have to roll that die i'm saving that for power to voids because the warhounds shield track is also very short and i need to keep that up um we'll see how how it ends up going um with them i really think that this kind of fills a niche um our co-host paul who plays legio defensor he kind of has a problem right now with his he runs an extermigus manipole of three warlords and he's got a problem because his two of his warlords are missiles on top volcano cannon quake cannon and his problem is, is that the volcano and the the quake are both blast weapons so he can't call shots with either of those weapons so if the conversion beamer is not a blast weapon and it gets stronger he he wants to engage from long distance that is his game he wants to keep you at long range so this could be a very good add for him the graviton the warlord graviton gun so I'll be excited to see that. Um, I know we're all eagerly awaiting to see the rules for them. Um, we also got a book for Titanicus. Did you see that? No, no, I missed that. Yeah, so they're taking all those campaign books and putting them together in one compendium. Oh, that's exciting. I like that. Yeah. Uh, not the greatest pickup if you already have all those books, but if you're like me and you don't, I already have it on pre-order. So... I have the ones for my Legios, but I've I've always been interested in collecting the set. I know Manipul has the set. He'll do that mm-hmm. immediately. But um, I, yeah, getting the Compendium, it works a little better for me anyway. Yeah, me as well. Um, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that. Apparently they've tweaked the um, custom Legios rules uh, because... Apparently there were some very broken combos that you could put together out of out of that rule set. So 
they've kind of toned that back from my understanding, um, which is a good thing. And uh, now you have all of your campaigns for the heresy all in one convenient location. So next time we get together, we'll bang out 50 Titanicus games of all the, the entire heresy. No, we won't, but it would be fun. Oh, yeah, I would give it my best shot. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's really it for news, isn't it? Yeah, that covers everything I wanted to talk about in a little bit more, so probably get on to the book. Yep, so we'll take a short break here and then jump into Fallen Angels. Welcome back, Legionaries. We're here to talk about Fallen Angels by Mike Lee. Some Descent and Betrayal is in the future, and this is a good story. I like most of the elements of it. I think it's fairly well-rounded. It's it's efficient storytelling. I think, for the most part, we're going to get into some things that we don't like. We kind of agree on, I think, Brandon and I. But uh, overall, I like the uh, both both arcs. There are... We've got two story arcs here. We're going to talk about them separately. So the Lion Nemiel arc and the Luther. Uh, shit, I forgot his name. The, the Luther. The Luther Zahariel arc. Sorry about that. And we'll, we'll talk about them separately. And the, the arcs don't crisscross. They don't intertwine at all. They're just running side by side. I think one has a lot more gas in the tank than the other. And we'll get into that. But starting off... I think we're at an interesting point because it's about 50 years after the last Dark Angels books, Descent of Angels. And, you know, Lion and Nemiel and all of the Lions chosen basically have continued on in the Great Crusade. Well, Luther and Zahariel and a few others have been garrisoned back on Caliban to train new troops, you know, make sure that they're meeting their recruitment and armory quotas basically. And, they're, they're stuck on Caliban, watching it become this unrecognizable planet. Meanwhile, the Lion and everybody else are off having uh, a blast gaining glory in the Great Crusade. We see a lot of the frustration come to a boiling point in the middle of the story, I think. But starting off, the Lion has received word that Horus and Lorgar Mortarian and... Uh, Lorg I'm sorry, no, not Lorgar... Mortarian, Fulgrim, and Angron have gone to the Warmaster's side and rebelled. So the Lion says to his cohort he has with him, you know, we're not going to be able to get to Istvan in time to be of help, but what we can do is I've kind of picked out this asset valuable to the Warmaster. We can go deny him some armaments off at Diamat. So... I'm going to take a handpicked squad and we see who that's made up of. I think that's written very well off to Diamat, which is a forge world. And we're going to do this covert op with a handful of troops and deny the war master something very important to him. And he doesn't reveal exactly what it is. He says Diamat is a, a forge world 
supplying you know weapons and ammunition if we can cut off that supply line it'll hamstring the war ma- hamstring the war master for the rest of his little rebellion and so nemiel and the others are like we trust our prim- primark let's go and i think it's a really interesting element that like nemiel's not written like he's just some kind of order following toady he has reached the uh the rank of chaplain at this point because he he had several successes he was very inspiring to his battle brothers and it's it's really cool because i think in the last book he's done a little bit of a disservice we don't really get a lot of his perspective hardly at all in descent of angels this book does a much better job of characterizing both him and zahariel when they're set up in the first book to be these rivals so it would have been much better to get kind of these tandem stories that work better off of one another. We don't get that in the first book. We do get it in this book almost. So, you know. Yeah, and one thing I like in the setup of this story arc is it kind of talks about how, and we'll get into the Caliban storyline after we talk about this storyline, but in the Caliban storyline, it, it starts off with how, you know, they're sending all these reports. They're like trying to do the best they can to be in the lion's good graces and it starts off with this story arc of like, we don't even talk about those guys anymore. Um, everybody's kind of forgotten about them. The lion doesn't even read the reports coming out of Caliban. He just delegates it off. It even talks about how Nemiel's like, oh, I should write Zahariel a letter. And I'll do it later. Um, so they are just completely forgotten at this point. And I think that is a good, that's a good part of this storyline is... It sets up, what does the Legion think of these people that they banished back to Caliban? Nothing. They don't even think of them anymore. Nobody talks about them. So I, I think that the story does that very well right here in the beginning. Um, and it talks about, you know, Nemiel's been rising through the ranks. Um, he's very inspired. He's very personable. And that's a key point of of his character is that... Uh, he he's very charismatic he can get a feel for people he can read people well um and that's that's going to be important in this storyline um that he kind of possesses that yeah and that's something i really liked about the opening combats of the diamat campaign where these hand-picked units that the lion takes with him they they land and they immediately have kind of this squad banter together and so every everybody in the squad is given a personality right off the right out of the gate you've got sergeant cole who is kind of the company man he's he always knows who needs to be where and you know nemiel is very good about like giving direction where he needs to but he also very very much trusts sergeant cole to run his own squad he's not nemiel is not uh micromanaging anybody in the story really you've got a a pretty cool tech marine who's more than willing to risk his own life for the mission uh in in a very kind of analytical way i think i think he's written pretty well for the couple of scenes that we get him in uh the squad is really good you get a couple of uh, squatty names here and there and for the most part they're all uh how, how do you say it? I mean, these are the guys you would want. Uh, these are the guys you would want at your back if you're fighting the predator or something. You know, it, it's a pretty good take. Yeah, well, I mean, it, the book does a very good job 
uh, of making these guys likable. And they also seem like people who have been fighting together for a very long time. Um, let me come out right off the bat here because I'm going to get very critical on this storyline. None of my critiques are stemming from this being poorly written. I think Mike Lee actually does a really good job writing every aspect of this book. There are parts of this book where I say, why is this here? It's not really contributing to the overall narrative of the book or the overall meta narrative of the heresy. The The other main, main thing that I think um, we should really talk about in this storyline um and you can tell me you want to talk about his conversation with the lion now or do you want to kind of wait and get further along very early on in the story he realizes that the lion's not telling them everything and you know after their initial few successes on diamat nemiel comes to the lion and says we're not just here for weapons and ammo are we and the lion has an interaction with uh the the governor general, I think it was, and a tech priest, right? And the lion is asking Nemuel, it's, you know, it's the new mega, it's the new forge comp, the forge complex is new magos because the old arch magos was killed by the traitors, right? So, lion asks Nemuel for his perspective on these two, and Nemuel says the the governor general is awesome. He is he's a company man. He's you know. Uh, and he's the emperor's man to the core. He will lead his his troops to the best of his ability in the emperor's name. And when they get to the the Magus, Nemuel's like, can't tell, he's mostly metal. And uh, the lion, during the conversation with this tech priest, the lion asks him of all the assets available on Diamat. And that kind of strikes Nemuel as an odd question at the time. Because if the lion, if the lion knows that they're, or that they're here to cut off weapons and ammo or whatever, uh, arm, arm, armaments, ammunition, and the like. The, the lion is looking for something specific, and that's the feeling that Nemuel gets. And so Nemuel realizes the lion's not telling them everything, and eventually gets it out of the lion that... How, do, how does it all unravel to you, Brandon? Because it's, it's a little tricky for me to explain, but the lion doesn't want to reveal too much because... He doesn't want to burden his underlings with extraneous detail. Is that how you read it? What exactly does he say there for you? Well, this is where we really draw into the chief flaw of the lion. Um, and to me, this is the entire purpose of this storyline is revealing the, f the fallibility of Lion L. Johnson the problem is, is that they do it in the beginning. Um, and the fallibility of Lion L. Johnson, he cannot read people. He does not understand people. He understands tactics. He understands how they will behave, like in a combat situation and things like that. But he just doesn't have that person-to-person -person type charisma. And so I think because of that, it, it feeds into a greater flaw, in my opinion, that because he can't read anyone, he will not trust anyone. And that stems from basically Luther almost getting him killed in the first book. And he tells himself from that point forward, if I can't trust the man that raised me, I'm not going to trust anybody at all. 
So we see this in the Unremembered Empire. I, I don't actually think that that's how that went down. Um, because it's said that the lion never actually knows. It, it's never said that the lion knows, hey, Luther walked away from this bomb. Um, right. It's just kind of said that like he kind of felt something was off. But then he's just like, all right, something's off. You're out of here. So no, we'll, no second thoughts, no thoughts of what kind of consequences that would have. Right. And we'll also kind of see this, this unwillingness to trust anyone later on in the stories, like in the unremembered empire, he's war master for Gilliman and Sanguinius, and he won't tell either of them anything. He might have a plan. He might need their resources. He won't let them in on any details. And we see it in this story as well, where He's he came to Diamet for a reason, and it was to procure these awesome siege engines that the Warmaster had commissioned like a uh, hundred years ago, I think. But they never went into service, so he's come here to to stop them from being recovered by the Warmaster. The Warmaster has a raiding fleet there trying to pick them up. The Lion swoops in just in time to deny them that success, and Nemiel is able to kind of piece this together through the conversations the lion is having with other people. And basically it gets to a point where Nemiel is like, I'm challenged or he kind of challenges the lion on a, on a couple of points in this conversation and basically says like, we, we need to know this for oper operational security or whatever. And the lion's like, you, you've read me very well and lets Nemiel in on the secret that we're here for siege machines, not weapons and ammo. Yeah. And Nemiel's kind of problem with it is that, uh... And again, because the lion doesn't understand people, you know, he asks for, oh, what's the full inventory of this planet? And Nemiel's first initial thought is, well, they're going to think we're just here to raid it too. And that's the impression that definitely it seems like the governor and the Archmagos, or the, sorry, not the Archmagos, the Magos Archoi, uh, it's, that's the kind of the impression they give off of, like, you are also here to plunder our planet. And so... I mean, it, it's told from Nemiel's perspective, but it definitely seems like it's a misstep on the part of the lion to just be so forthcoming of like, I need to know exactly what's here. And it really throws Nemiel off. Again, like I said, I think that that's kind of the purpose of this entire thread of this book is to kind of reveal that the lion isn't good at interacting with people in, in this way. Um, he's kind of the foil to Horace in that regard. Horace is beyond charismatic. He can get anyone to like him. Um, the lion can't do that at all. Um, he's tactically brilliant. He is the greatest swordsman in the Imperium. That's just, uh, that's just a fact. We can argue that if you want, but he is absolutely the greatest swordsman in the Imperium. Um, that's not really the point of this story though. <laughs> but yeah, that, and that's kind of where my problem with this, for this plot thread comes is this is in the beginning of this plot thread. We have the information that we're realistically supposed to take out of this story for the lion, but we're not even halfway through this plot thread. So now things are just happening to happen. And while it's written well, in my opinion, it doesn't need to be here. You could have done this in a different way. 
And frankly, for the meat of this book, this this storyline doesn't even need to be here at all, in my opinion. The real meat of this story is what's happening on Caliban. I, I agree with all that. I just wish that the, the real twist of the knife is at the end of this arc. It does not end on a note that contributes to the rest of the, the Dark Angels storyline, basically. The lion could have been anywhere doing anything else, and it would have had the same effect overall, I think. Because what they ultimately what they do on Diamat, they win on Diamat. What happens after that basically kind of erases all their effort. And we'll get to that. I think there are a couple more things to cover. I'm not really sure how much else we need to cover, really. They're able to secure the siege weapons. The Magus Archoy is, he turns out to be a traitor. He killed the previous uh, Arch Magus. The Governor General is, he dies the company man. He has a very valiant stand against the Sons of Horus as they come in uh, with their raiding fleet. I noticed something in the writing. The, the author misses when Horus rebranded the Luna Wolves to the Sons of Horus. They changed their armor color. So the Sons of Horus are sea green. The, uh, Mike Lee writes them as Luna Wolves wearing pearlescent white armor. And Yeah, I noticed that as well. Um, I, I, think I, it, I can forgive it. It's really yeah, oh, yeah. Over, overall, it's, it's a very minor detail, but I noticed a couple of things like that. Like in the Caliban arc, they don't talk about the Edict of Nikea at all. At this point in the Horus, in the Horus Heresy... Psychers have been denied their psychic powers, I think. So Nen- or, uh, Zahariel's just walking around on Caliban like, mind bullets everywhere. I actually, I have, I think that that is actually kind of important to that story arc. So we'll get into it when we get to right, Caliban. Right, right. I was going to, yeah. there's, there's a way around it. I think we're yeah. both thinking the same thing. We'll mm-hmm. get to that later. Anyway, uh, it, you know, the... The Dark Angels are pushed to their limit. We get like one scene where Nemiel and his squad are facing certain death at the hands of the Sons of Horus. And at the last second, the lion shows up and just turns into a blender and completely pastes like 20 Sons of Horus right there on the spot and they fall back. And it buys them enough time to... that These giant siege tanks, we, I don't think we get a name on what they're called, but I think, I think they're like the predecessors to the... I think they're... Uh, it's like a Sanctum Imperialis. It's a giant mobile vehicle, the size and scale of a Titan, basically. But they can be operated much, much easier by a single pilot rather than uh, a team of people like a, a Titan. Anyway, they basically they've got a dreadnought with them. They're able to plug their dreadnought into one of these siege engines and uh, break the 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 siege that they're having against these. Uh, Sons of Horus, and it's kind of cool. It's it's a neat little scene. But again, at the very end of the story, the, the last scene you get with the lion, he's talking to another Primarch, and this Primarch's like, we'd hope to uh, resupply here at Diamat, but but we see that uh, during the Rebels, or yeah, during the Rebels' attacks, they basically level all of Diamat except the holding facility for these siege weapons. So all the supplies and armaments are now gone. It's just the, the big tanks. And this Primarch's like, we wanted to resupply here, but we're not going to be able to do that now. We'll have to figure something else out. And they have this little exchange, and 
this other Primarch, we don't have an image of who he is yet. There's no descriptors says that, you know, you're, you were able to foil the war master here. And I see now that maybe the emperor was wrong in appointing Horus and the lion's like coming from you. That means a lot. So we get a sense that this has been one of the more outspoken Primarchs about Horus's appointment. And at the very end, we find out it's Pertorabo. And at this point in the, in the heresy, the news that we've received is that there was the massacre at Istvan 3 and Horus is regrouping at Istvan 5. And the news from that point is that the word bearers, night lords, iron warriors, so Pertorabo's legion, and the Alpha Legion are on their way to Istvan 5 to back up the Iron Hands, Raven Guard, and Salamanders in crushing Horus's rebellion. Unbeknownst to anyone else, the Iron Warriors are amongst, amongst the traitors. And so Lion says there's no one else in the Imperium that can make better use of these siege tanks than you. And so he just gives all of these resources over to Perturabo at the drop of a hat. You know, there's no... There's no mistrust. He's just like, ah, Proterabo's on our side. What are we going to do? You know, even though four other Primarchs have gone traitor, I'm just going to trust my buddy Proterabo here. And it's it's a real twist of the knife at the end of the story. It's a little frustrating because we had this great story up until this point. And I think this is the core of why Brian and I are frustrated here is that ultimately this this arc of the story goes nowhere because all of the lion's efforts are subverted by this one dumb decision at the end. If the lion had been like, I'm going to keep half of these, you take the other half, I'm going to take the half that are, are that are already, they've been taken out of cold storage, they're already armed up, I'm going to make the best use of them I can, you do whatever the heck you want with the other ones. But the lion just signs over all of this ordinance to the greatest siege master in the Imperium, and it just doesn't doesn't do anything after that. And it's just a total kick in the nuts. So it's yeah. it gets very frustrating there at the end. What what drives me nuts about this is we go there, the the whole point purpose of the story is we're trying to deny the traitors access to these big siege engines. Now, if they had gone there and they had been defeated and they the traitors get that, okay. You know, you know, we can we can make a story out of that. They went there, they won. Uh, and then they're like, okay, we're gonna write this epilogue where we just nullify that. So Now granted the lion doesn't know that until post Istvan five, but it's very frustrating. But you from as our the reader do know that. It's very frustrating. Yeah. It's it's Definitely, definitely for us, especially since like in um, in Angel Exterminatus, these siege weapons are never talked about. Mm-hmm. And that's the next book with the Iron Warriors. They don't show up at Istvan. They, I don't know that they're ever mentioned again unless they show up at the Siege of Terra, which you would know more about that than I would at this point. But uh, I have not gotten far enough in the Siege of Terra to where the Iron Warriors are on Terra. So... so uh, no, to my knowledge, they have not come back up again. So that's another key point to, to, to my frustration is that this this would be a much better story if there was some payoff because we have, this is a very good first act for a Chekhov's gun, but it never shows up later on in the heresy, to my knowledge. And I've, I 
got, I think I had like six books left before I dropped off. And then getting into the Siege of Terra, I still don't know if they show up. The, the thing that bothers me the most is like, we don't have any idea of what these weapons are because they're never named. They're just giant siege weapons that the Warmaster developed but never used. And so they're put into cold storage and now he wants them. And like, if there was some kind of, uh, if, like, if it was the Mechanicum Ordinatus engine, that would be something tangible in, in the, the lore or something that we could put kind of draw a picture of. Now they're described very, very well in the book, but we don't, other than being very efficient siege devices, we don't have any, stakes in what they might accomplish other than knocking down walls, breaking fortresses. There, there's not... All that stuff can be accomplished by stuff we already have in the lore. So these, the, this is nothing... They're new, but they're nothing that don't accomplish things that we've already seen done. So I don't... They're not necessarily groundbreaking devices is what I'm trying to say. We already have big super weapons that do this kind of thing. What are five of these vehicles compared to a Legion of Titans? Yeah, and another thing, another big problem I have with the storyline is that Megos Archoi is kind of the main villain. Um, you know, and the the revealing of his uh, treachery is done very well. It's written quite well. He dies completely off screen. He dies in a bombardment. Yeah, it's it's. Uh pretty frustrating because there's there's a split second where Nemuel has him dead to rights and then he gets distracted by the combat and there there's no payoff for the the story's villain mm-hmm. yeah he and just uh and even the gone. even the governor general who i i liked a lot i can't remember his name now of course but i liked how he was written quite a bit he was like this at first when they meet him they're like oh this is probably, you know, some foppish nobleman who uh, is kind of in over his head. And when he shows up, he's like, he's wearing a flak vest. He's just as dirty as everyone else around him. He's been fighting in the trenches for like a, a couple of months. And he also dies off screen. And it's like, I would have loved to see his last stand. But, you know, he doesn't even get an on-screen death. And it's kind of, it's, again, it's another frustrating element to the story arc. Yeah, his name is uh, Taddeus Kulik. Um, he gets done a little bit better because you know you know where he is, and then you see that the sons of Horus are coming in, and you're like, "Well, he gonna die." Uh. <laughs> yeah, and and he and his men fought till the very none of them retreated. They all they all died at their post, so it's very heroic. It's you could tell that that they gave it their all, but it just it's unfortunate that it happens off screen. Yeah, and and they do find his body, so you know at least he gets that with Archoy. They're like, first off his troops are there where they are because they think, well, if Archoy's still alive after the bombardment, he's going to come from that direction, but he never comes. He never shows up. So, and early on in the story, before we know he's a, a traitor, he offers up uh, units of his Skatari to, to plug into these Astartes, squads to to kind of boost their combat abilities and partway through the story arc he turns traitor and the the skatari turn on everybody basically but we don't i don't really feel like we see that 
on the Dark Angel squad level like it was implied to happen earlier on in the story. It just feels like kind of a missed opportunity. Kind of like the, the Death of Innocence on Mars when people just started getting shot in the back. I don't think there's a good scene describing that in this book when it was set up for it. I think the Death of Innocence on Mars has done much better than this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, that was, I mean, that's one of my highest praises in that book. But, um, yeah, you're right. It just kind of happens. Um, you know, that, I don't know, it's, this whole story just doesn't pay off well to me. And, like, we talked, you talked a bit about that scene with the lion and Perturabo. This is, in this scene, we learn another thing about the lion, which is that he feels that he should be War Master, and he is trying to maneuver himself to get named War Master after this whole Horus. He thinks this Horus thing is going to get dealt with. Um, he's going to be, you know, purged and then put with the lost and the forgotten that the Emperor is going to name a new War Master. And that's why he says he gives the guns to Perturabo is because he says, oh, support my claim to be the next War Master. And Perturabo, of course, is like, oh, yeah, I'll totally do that. But we know Perturabo's lying, obviously. And we know that the lion can't read people, so he won't know that Perturabo is lying. But at some point, it, it, it kind of feels like, you know, the entirety of this story, you know, the, the governor and the Magos think that the lion is here to, um, to plunder the Forge world. And then Archoy turns out to be a traitor. There's a theme in this storyline of who can you trust? You don't know. And then the lion just kind of tosses that out the window at the very end there. Like that theme permeates throughout the entirety of this storyline. And then it's just kind of tossed aside like, oh yeah, I totally can trust Perturabo. Four of your brothers turned traitor. And maybe that's meant to reinforce just how little the lion can read people. That's my only, my only, you know, rationalization for that. I think the, the greater disservice is done after this book with Nemiel, because in this book, like I said, in the, the previous book, Descent of Angels, we didn't really get to know who Nemiel was beyond being is Raphael's rival. In this book, we get a Zahariel. very... Zahariel, sorry. Zahariel's rival. In this book, we get a very clear idea of who Nemiel is, what he stands for, what his ideals are, how he functions on a squad level, kind of what he does on his own. What happens to him, his fate, is the biggest disservice, not just to him, but I think a little bit to the lion. We'll get into that in another story, and I'll have a lot to say about that because it's very disappointing. And it's, it's a very similar twist to the knife. I know I know I keep saying that, but it's it's a very similar feeling. It's just frustration. It's not a good payoff. More on that in the in the story concerning his fate. But Well, and I, I think I'm, I'm not going to get into details about what happens there, but I think that also plays into what I think is a big problem in this book, which is that Mike Lee did not create these characters and it shows. Like, the first book, Descent of Angels, was written by Mitchell Scanlon. And it was done very well. But for, you know, whatever reason, I have no idea what it was. He parted ways with Black Library when he did. 
And they looked at Mike Lee and said, hey, pick up the on these characters, finish out the storyline. And I, I mean, that's tough for not every writer has the talent or the desire to do that. I will say Mike Lee does write all these characters with care to me anyway. Mm-hmm. He, I think he's like, I, he's handled Emil much better in this book than Michael Scanlon did in the previous book. Those are yeah, just, I, I'm not going to say that he mishandles the characters, but you know, as we go along with the dark angels, you'll see that the main characters of the dark angels, they all change. And so I think what kind of happened there was as they had to progress the storyline of this Legion, having it handed off between authors and such. Who wrote Angels of Caliban? Gav Thorpe. So, you know, we'll see, that's kind of the next mainline title for the Dark Angels, which is not for a very long time. Uh, I think that's book 38. Um, but you can see that these guys have been handed between author and author. And... So none of these characters really gets to get realized by the person who kind of created them. And and that kind of just shows, in my opinion. And no, I do think Mike Lee does a good job picking up um, these characters and running with them. But the fact that he had to do that just kind of shows. Yeah, I can see that. So do you think that kind of wraps up the Diamat arc? I think so. I think we should move on to the Caliban arc because this is really the meat of the story. Yeah, th- I think this is where we we see the biggest change in the the heresy overall concerning the Dark Angels, and one of our biggest characters, the Lion, isn't even there. And it's perhaps it's because of his absence. Well, I'm going to say that because of his absence, we see a lot of this behavior. Hmm. Yeah, again, I would agree. I, I would say that it all of this stems from the lion's inability to understand other people is kind of where all of this stems from. So the Caliban arc is a, is a curious one, and it's one that I enjoyed. So we find out that communications between Caliban and the lion have been a little, little one-sided, basically. Caliban provides their recruits, their armaments, and a report. They ship them off to the front lines, and they don't really hear anything back. Now, Zahariel is kind of, he's in the upper echelon of the command, so Luther is master of Caliban. He's kind of got his coterie of of, uh, lieutenants or whatever that follow him around. Zahariel is, you know, the rank of librarian, which is curious because as I mentioned earlier on the edict of Nikea disbanded the, the librarians. They were just supposed to be regular Marines at that point, no more psychics. And I think my reason for that is communications to Caliban have been just as scattered from everywhere else as they were from the lion. So Caliban's not getting a lot of word on what's going on in the, the Greater Imperium. And I think that's why they're they're so eager to kind of throw off the Imperial mantle there uh, at the end of the story. Well, and I think that's why also they still have active psychers in use. I don't think the Edict of Nikea, Nikea ever got to them. Uh, 
Right. And that just, that just kind of reinforces just how forgotten and not thought about they are. The, the, because the Imperium treats a lot of worlds like this. You provide your tithe. You don't talk to us. You call you you know you need to act like an imperial. You provide your ta- you pay your taxes basically, and we don't want to hear from you. And that's how that's kind of the deal that a lot of these worlds get. You know, in the uh, a lot of people talk. A lot of the um, what am I trying to say? A lot of the populace talk about this is like Caliban is unrecognizable at this point. The forests are gone. You know, we one of the one of the rebels on Caliban says we destroyed all the great beasts, but they never left basically talking about how when the Imperium installed this new regime, it basically destroyed the Calvin Calvinites way of life. And that's why so many of them are so angry. Yeah. Well, there there's multiple meanings to that. If, um, if we want to get into that specific phrase that, uh, Sardaviel uses of, uh, the forests are gone, but the beasts remain. Um, that that has a lot of implications in it. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. it's a very very interesting statement, and it applies to a lot of aspects of the story. Yeah, and and what I kind of like to get into first is kind of setting where Caliban is at right now. They have been I, Luther has just kind of put his head down and just gotten to work on this uh, training regiment. It says in the beginning, um, it's talked about how when they had arrived, the average time for a neophyte to become a space marine and get be ready to ship was eight years. And through various improvements, they have managed to squeeze that down to two, which is incredibly efficient. Maybe sometime we can do, you know, we can take a break from hobby Roundtable and talk about the making of a space marine or something like that. Maybe, um, I think I know that's been talked about a lot by other folks. I, I think it would be a fun subject for us. But do, my point is doing that in, doing all of that in two years is an incredible feat. Uh, the likes of which I don't think and I don't even think any other legion is capable of that. Another interesting point is the the failure rate is also decreased by like, what they say, like 70% or something. So almost none of their neophytes are dying comparatively and they're turning them out in record time. It's amazing. Yeah. It's made very clear. He's doing an incredible job of he, he took this and said, I'm going to be the absolute best at the assignment that has been given to me. And it's not even particularly comparable. Um, As we'll get later into the heresy, it's kind of talked about how, especially on the Traitor Legion side, they're struggling to replenish their ranks because they just don't have the time to create more Astartes. The Dark Angels are doing it in that amount of time. But what we're going to see is they're going to stop getting those reinforcements pretty quick. And that's why we see the Fallen swell to such incredible numbers because they are just pumping these Astartes out at damn near the speed of light, comparatively. I think another interesting point is, as I said earlier on, it's been about 50 years since the Sirach campaign. That was the end of the last book. Now, as Raphael puts together a report, you know, with, uh, it's like a billion rounds of bolter ammunition, whatever, 500 
It's Zahariel. Space... You keep confusing the two. Sorry. Zahariel puts admonished. together this... I stand admonished. Zahariel puts together this great report saying, like, we've got all your bolters and your new space marines ready to go. And he kind of includes this petition to the lion to say, basically, we've been at our post doing a bang-up job for 50 years. What we need is frontline experience and rotate out with some veterans so that, you know, the veterans can imply better or can apply better training to the neophytes. You know, because it's like when you get guys showing up on the front line, they need to have an idea of what to expect. And guys that have been on garrison duty for 50 years aren't going to have the same kind of frontline experience your big bad veterans are going to have. So Zahariel is like, you know, we need to rotate out. That way we're getting better experience here on Caliban. And he knows like, well, probably not even going to get looked at, but I have to try. And he's kind of resigned to, you know, Luther gave this great speech at the beginning of this assignment being like, if we do our best and prove to the lion, we are the best at this. We're going to go back to the front line. And 50 years later, a lot of the guys garrisoned on Caliban are like, he was just saying that to like make us feel good. It's never going to happen. We've fallen from grace, basically. And it's kind of a really depressing point in the book because like, even Zahariel talks about how like he hasn't heard from Nemiel forever. And, you know, later on, they don't, later on these um kind of, the, the Calibanites here are saying like, we haven't heard from anybody on the front line in decades. Nemiel could be dead in a ditch for all we know. And again, it's just this really dark point in the story. It's like, these guys are so resigned to this fate. It's no wonder they they rebelled. It's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's talked about how these guys, like... That's, that's what I like so much about the Fallen stories. The Fallen are really unique in the heresy. In that... With Horus, you can see kind of where he was at, but he was also manipulated um, to turning against the Emperor. These guys just got dealt the short end of the stick constantly. They saw all the downsides of the Imperium. Uh, none of the upsides, which, I mean, depending on who you ask, there are no upsides to the Imperium. But, uh, I mean, besides getting violated by demons... There, I think it's important to say that like the the raw deal on Caliban is that they are just a tithe world at this point. They might have stewardship of Caliban, but they have no governance of it. They have to govern in such a way, in, in the way that the Imperium dictates. They are not like they they can't have this lush forest world they fought so hard to protect. It's all being clear cut. The mountains are being cracked open and mined to to barren landscape and it's it's none of the ideals that the original order fought to protect so again all these you know old order veterans really do see the downside of the imperium that's like yeah we have stewardship of this world but we have you know no no actual capacity to govern it because it was up to us it'd be wildlands and for, uh, forests not all these you know monst monstrosity uh, monstrous hives popping up all over the place and just destroying the landscape. 
Yeah, it's it's made very clear that like this is supposed to be a Legion home world, but the Imperium doesn't treat any planet with respect. It's all just it's all meat for the grinder to them. I think it paints a good sense of you hear about when when Horus declares that he's against the Emperor, you hear about all these worlds that are just throwing off. They're like, yeah, we hate the Emperor too. I think Caliban is kind of a good case study as to why these places hate the Emperor. They come in, they get conquered, and then they get left. And they're like, the only thing they're told is, keep hitting your taxes, or we're going to come nuke you. And that's just it. That's a pretty raw deal for anybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. And again, again, it's like, yeah, no, no duh that these guys rebelled. So... <clears throat> I think Zahariel, what happens here? Zahariel is talking to Luther, and it comes to light that the, like, the northern arcology is not meeting their ammunition quotas, basically. And Luther has been making up the shortfall by dipping into their ammunition re- reserves there at the fortress. So now the fortress is going to be undersupplied if they have to hold out for a siege or something. And the the local authorities, the the Jaegers, have not been able to crack down on kind of the the worker revolt that's been going on in the north. And if we remember from the previous story, the the Northwoods are it was like the most dangerous, wild, haunted area on all of Caliban. And now there's this big manufacturing facility there and things are kind of starting, you know, screwy things are starting to happen there. So I think eventually Zahariel gets the go ahead to go and investigate himself, right? Or no, uh, it's because Cypher has gone and made contact with the rebel leaders, right? So well, Zahariel... So, so what happens is that the reason that they're having this shortfall of ammunition is there is like a rebel element on Caliban that Luther has been keeping quiet, but they're getting to the point where it's, you know, they, they can't make up for the shortfall anymore. It's becoming a problem. We figure out it's the rebels are these folks who they don't like the Imperium. They think that they're getting a raw deal. Um, and at this point, Zahariel is very much like, oh, no, the Imperium helps us. Like, it's a force for good. Where would we be without them? Um, all of this stuff. And that's where we get this line from one of these rebel leaders whose name is Sardaviel. And he says, uh, you know, the forest may be gone. Uh, he says, Johnson lied to us all. The forest may be gone, but the monsters remain. And there's a lot that we can be getting into with this. One being the monsters of Cal, the great beast of Caliban literally still exist. They are still physically there, um, which they are about to find out. Um, and we're going to find out why as well. But the other kind of side of this is that the Terrans, you know, the, 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 the Imperial um, folks, they are also the monsters who are exploiting the world as well. So I thought that was a really great line um, just for the, the different levels that it goes to. But what happens with what you're what you're referring to in the North Wilds is uh, one of the arcologies goes completely offline, goes dark. It's this brand new one. It hasn't been completely brought online yet. Um, 
Zahariel kind of forces Luther's hand to send Astartes to investigate because an entire company of Jaegers landed and they immediately went offline as well. So they're like, hey, something big is going on here. So they send uh, a squad of Astartes and they get there and it's just a ghost town um, and their boxes don't work. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail here unless you do, but functionally this place is the site of a chaos ritual, really. Um, they end up fighting some zombies. Um, the horror aspect of this, I think, is actually done decently Yeah, well. I, I did want to mention the reefer worms. Mm-hmm. Really cool kind of um, kind of monster element here. These are These are creatures natural to Caliban and they're like a big armored worm with a, a spike that will shoot you in the spinal column basically and control your body. And so they end up fighting a bunch of these uh, reaver worms, which I think is fitting for the, the villain at the end kind of, or the, the, the element at the end. Um, the worms are, are an, are an element that kind of come around there at the end of the story. I just think they're really neat. I think it's, it's cool when a author talks about alien fauna, basically xenofauna, I guess you'd call it. Because when uh, in this fanciful sci-fi element that we have, when a author is just talking about sheep and cattle and deer and stuff, that kind of ruins the, uh, what's the term, verisimilitude, like something that belongs in the story. We're on another planet very far away from Earth. I'm not going to imagine I'll run into cow, deer, sheep, dogs. They're all going to be very fanciful uh, alien elements. And talking about these monstrous reaver worms does that very well. Yeah, I agree. And what we what we come to find out is that there's a sect of Terrans who are performing these rituals and causing dead to rise and really souping up these reaver worms, turning them, you know, kind of filling them with the chaos juice. And what we find out is that the entire world of Caliban is corrupted by warp taint, which causes everybody to freak out because everybody here knows how the Imperium deals with warp taint, which is life eater first, ask questions later. Um, And obviously these guys do not want that to happen. Through various other meetings with the rebel leaders, uh, Luther kind of goes into seclusion. So it's Zahariel and our old friend Astalan from, uh, from Tales of Heresy, who has also been banished back here. They are kind of running the show and they're meeting with the rebel leaders and finding out, you know, a little bit more about like kind of this taint and, you know, things around that and around these Terran sorcerers. And basically what they find out is that the North Wilds Arcology, um, the main one, the other one was like a new one that had just come online, has kind of fallen silent, same kind of deal. And they kind of crack a their, you know, a truce to say, hey, we got to get this taken care of. We got to snuff this out. We can't let the Administratum find out because the Administratum will be like, hey, you, hey, Tara, you need to come nuke this place. And one of the interesting things we find out is about the new Lord Cypher. Um, we find out that the new Lord Cypher is the last remaining member of the Knights of Lupus from 
the first book, Descent of Angels. Uh, and that's the reason that he was named for this. And what it's implied is that the lion knew about this taint and was working to hide it up to the point that he couldn't hide it anymore, at which point he was fine with the planet being exterminatist. Right, so he's basically kind of... It, Luther says in a, in a big confrontation, the lion didn't exile us here. He sent us here to die. And he's recognized that because Caliban is doomed, so are they, because they're never going to get leave to get off the planet. They need to stay here and do their job until they inevitably are overcome by this, this warp corruption. So he's prepared to take things into his own hands. He, he, we think he has a plan. He seems to have a plan anyway. He's been reading up on all the, the tomes that were salvaged from the Knights of Lupus fortress. We, we get plenty of references of this in the first book. So he's got access to all this strange occult knowledge. It turns out the Knights of Lupus always knew that this was happening. And, you know, they're seemingly powerless to stop it in the face of the Order. Anyway, the situation in the Northwild's arcology devolves quite a bit. The Terrans and the Calibanites are basically segregated. I think the Terrans are forced down in the lower levels of the arcology, correct? No, because reverse that. It's the, oh, the Calibanites, Calibanites who are forced down in the lower subsection. The Terrans are given, which kind of just adds fuel to the fire of upsetting right. these guys of, hey, these are our people, and you're kind of sentencing them to die. Right, because the, the lower levels are less hospitable. They're not getting the rations that they need. They're crammed in there. It's way too many people in a small space. So it devolves so bad, it turns out that, you know, these People are killing each other, throwing their bodies down elevator shafts or whatever. It is just, it's turned into this horrific mass grave, basically. And it, they find out, our main characters here find out that it is weakening the barrier between the physical world and the warp. And that's bad because these Terran sorcerers have been exploiting that to their own nefarious ends. We're not entirely sure what that is, you know, other than that the heart of the taint in this story is soon to be revealed, right? You know, they kind of, they, they confront Lord Cypher with the rebel leaders and they're like, hey, Luther's been in seclusion, but we need to talk to him now. Um, and they basically hold him at gunpoint and make him take them to Luther. And... They kind of lay out what's going on here, and Luther's like, all right, well, the the Imperiums would destroy the planet. So we're going to throw off the yoke of the Imperium. And is Raphael, the chief librarian, he's not down with this at all. Everybody else there is pretty cool with it. Um, and you definitely get the, you know, this is kind of the, the moment where you realize, like, hey, these guys have been so dejected by the Imperium that they really don't care. Even Astalan, who is not Calibanite, he is a Terran, but he is like, I, you know, I've been done so dirty by the Imperium that I don't care about it anymore. Uh, so they have a fight with uh, Israfael. 
it turns out that uh, Luther's been getting into some warp fuckery from the books uh, that from the Knights of Lupus that he's been reading. So psychic powers don't exactly work on him. But uh, he's he's is Raphael's wounded and uh, imprisoned at this point. It's also where Zahariel comes to realize that is Raphael tampered with his memory in the first book. And that is the tipping point for is Raphael or sorry, Zahariel. And, you know, they have their big fight as Brandon says, is Raphael's wounded and imprisoned. And the, the story kind of progresses from there. But Luther is, is described as being covered in these occult tattoos. And when is Raphael tries to blast him with some warp lightning or something, it these runes glow and the psychic energy dissipates off of Luther. So Luther is shown to have accumulated some kind of occult knowledge or protection against warp taint. So it's it's a little interesting. Yeah, and from there they head up to the North Wilds Arcology, and uh, you know they I don't want to get into too much detail, but they they arrest all the Terrans for the most part, like the Terran leadership. And they head down in there. They find where the the ritual is going on. And Luther says to Zahariel, we're not going to try and banish the, the creature. We're going to try and bind it. Um, and Zahariel's like, why would we do that? And Luther basically lays out, hey, the full might of the Imperium could potentially be coming down on us. We're going to need every stick we can get our hands on. You know, I, I definitely see the logic here. Obviously, we know that uh, making deals with warp entities usually is a pretty bad plan. But you can see the desperation because these guys know exactly how the Imperium operates. They know that realistically they couldn't hold out against a full mass force from, you know, the Imperial Army or another Legion or something like that, which they have been threatened with in the past, you know, one of the administratum officials actually says, I'm going to call a different Legion to come in here and sweep away the rebellion at one point, which was a really bad plan uh, on her part. They, they stop this ritual and Zahariel's trying to bind this thing. Uh, but they're trying to learn its true name. And this is kind of like a religious type occult thing of if you can learn a demon's true name you can control it the name that we get is oroboros which is not its true name but that is a name that comes back up especially with the arcs of omen uh in 40k uh they talk about oroboros quite a bit and the lion coming back has stuff to do with that but the ritual fails and zahariel collapses dead except he's not actually dead. Luther pulls some more warp fuckery and brings him back, but he goes into a coma for months. And when he wakes up, he doesn't tell Luther, but he knows the entity's name. And Luther is under the impression that the, the entity was banished, but kind of some of the last lines are that Zahariel knows that it wasn't banished. It was merely locked away again. You know, it's it's sleeping in in the bowels of the planet or something like that, and he he's keeping the information to himself. He knows the the demon's real name. This is actually a part that this part again, and this is the second time it's happened in this story. This undoes 
the rest of the story for me. Because we find out that the Terrans, they weren't actually trying to unleash this entity. They were trying to permanently banish it. And this just doesn't work for me at all. Because any other time we've seen a banishment go down, you don't have to drown a planet in blood to do it. But this that's what these guys do. They raise the dead. They do all this yeah. stuff to weaken the barriers. Everything from here points to this is a summoning not this is not how banishments work in this series yeah or realistically the 40k universe unless unless they had to unless they had to get it out because it's in prison it's been it's basically been imprisoned kind of by the watchers that's that's how i understood it Mm -hmm. maybe the, the these cultists had to get it out of its prison so that they could cast it away that's the only reason it makes sense to me but as you said, if if we don't know any of that, and we, we, we don't, from what we get from the story, we don't know if that's the case. It does make the ending null and void, basically, because it it it's not a bow on the end of the story. It's more of a turn. Yeah, and even if that's what they were doing, they're sacrificing a bunch of Calibanites to do it. So we still kind of would have gotten to the same place, really. Because the main theme of this story is that Caliban is being mistreated by the Imperium on a macro level and also on a micro level. We see like straight up racism of if you're a Calibanite, you're less than a Terran. You deserve less. I wonder if... I wonder, not that it's kind of semantic at at the end of the story, is that I wonder if the Calibanites just call anyone not from Caliban a Terran. Well, I think they do. Right. I think that's implied. Not that, like, again, not that it matters. But the point remains the same. You're either an Imperial or a Calibanite. Right. Imperial might be a better word. And I think it's, it's real... It's a mistake that the Imperium makes is a whole... And I think we see this. It's it's a problem that the Imperium makes as a whole. They're not installing any kind of uh, any kind of appreciable ideology. They're kind of saying, uh, you know, you're just a you're an Imperial world now, and you need to toe the line. Otherwise, you're going to get crushed. They're not installing any kind of ideals to live up to beyond this you know secular gosh what would you even call it the imperial truth well yeah so it's it's referred to as the imperial truth but how would you describe it greater than that it's just secularism yeah it's what kind of because because it doesn't boil down to even kind of any patriotism right well it's um, more the threat of pay your taxes or you know get blown up or get killed basically the patriotism is that the throne world is the original home world of mankind. I suppose, but the your average imperial citizen doesn't get a a good idea of who the emperor is. They're just kind of told stories about this this mighty uh, this mighty man that united humanity. Well, and to be frank, why should they care about where the the home world of mankind is? Right. These worlds have been uh, you know colonized by humans for 
potentially thousands of years at this point. It was like the same it's lifespan like around of 5, our planet. Years. Yeah. Old, yeah, Old Night is long. Right. Um, and, and let's be clear, all of these planets, all of these were colonized before Old Night. So why should they care? Uh, yeah, that's that's the that's what kind of what I'm getting at is that the Imperium isn't installing anything that subverts five thousand years of independent culture. Well, and they're and, working too fast, right? Yeah, the Great Crusade takes two hundred years. You're not subverting five thousand years of culture in right. a couple of months. You're just not. <clears throat> yeah, and especially when the you know these administration centers and factories and mines start popping up all over your planet, it quickly becomes something unrecognizable. And we've said it a couple of times already. It's a recipe for revolt. Yeah. I mean, it's when you, when you kind of take a, take the time to look at all of these, these factors and let's, let's go outside of just this book for a minute. The Horus heresy was inevitable. Something like this was going to happen. Now, maybe, maybe the emperor could have kept, could have kept his kind of iron fist on the galaxy if all of the Primarchs had stayed loyal. But it would have that would have been what they had come to is all of the legions, all their their entire job would have just been go to this world because it's in revolt. As soon as you crush it, there's 10 more that we need you to get to as well. Right. And, you know, even if the Emperor had stayed on the front lines for another 100 years or so, I I don't know. Like, eventually, you know, Angron was going to have his meltdown eventually no matter what. I think Perturabo would have gotten more and more bitter as the heresy went on. Gosh, who else? Um, Fulgrim at some point would have felt neglected. You know, the Night Haunter was always going to fly off the handle. I don't think the Emperor could have kept a lid on it, even if he was on the front lines. No, not at all. I mean, look, the Emperor was on the front lines while Lorgar was going and experimenting with Chaos. We haven't really gotten into the Emperor all that much. We did a little bit with the Last Church. When you look at the Emperor's character, there was no other end that could have happened than this, you know, he doesn't view the Primarchs as his sons. He views them as tools. We talked, I, I know I said it in the last church, the emperor's out for capital H humanity. Right. And he will burn billions to save trillions. The problem I, is, is that the billions don't really like being burned. That's kind of implied. His overall mentality is really implied in Mechanicum when fudge i can't remember her name when she's having the the whole vision quest with the uh the the dragon shard or whatever she sees the the narrow path he is committed to taking humanity on so they might survive uh it's just it's pretty telling as to what the emperor is willing to put himself through and humanity through for the sake of saving whatever he can basically so it's it's all all very inevitable, it seems. Yeah, and it's kind of implied later on that this was the only system that would work because of the horrors that were coming to destroy humanity. 
you know, I don't know that we would look at the universe of 40k and say that that is an ideal situation. And obviously, he didn't think it his uh, his sons were going to turn against him. That wasn't really part of the plan. I think he knew that some would fall. He just didn't know which ones. Yeah, well... Anyway, to, to bring it all back around to Caliban, uh, it's I think it's a good micro-level examination of what's happening on the, the grandiose scale of the galaxy. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's the... F- you know that I'm I'm really interested in the Fallen uh, because of this. Because you're the, a dirty heretic. That's the thing, though. The Fallen really aren't heretics. The least interesting Fallen are the ones that turn to chaos. Right. A lot of the Fallen don't, especially with the Lion coming back in 40k, this stuff. like I'm really excited to see where they go with in that setting, where things go with. It sounds like the Lion is already starting to gather Fallen to him who are like, hey, we never even knew you. Uh, we weren't... We were following the orders that we were given because we didn't know about the Imperium. You know, stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of Fallen like that. There's Fallen who don't follow Chaos. There's Fallen who do follow Chaos. These guys are really interesting because once they throw off the yoke of the Imperium, everybody's got their own agenda. And especially when we get to like Angels of Caliban, you'll see how Luther navigates, navigates well, sitting on top of a house of cards. Uh, these guys get, this is, again, this is one of my favorite storylines. Uh, I know I've told you this, I think I've said it on air as well. The Dark Angels to me in 40K are one of the most boring and uninteresting chapters in all of 40k in 30k they are the most interesting chapter or legion i should say 30k show (laughs) no i'm i'm right there with you in regards to like ultramarines and white scars in 40k they get a raw deal in 30k they are so freaking cool i almost if i had the ultramarines i was gonna do white scars oh you should have done white scars there's still time i might yeah the, although I don't know that you could do white scars, um, your burns are not as good as the cons. I guess I'll just have to get some practice in. Yeah. I'm looking forward to those couple of books by Chris Wright. Anyway, we're on the, a tangent. Yeah, the, the white scars, I'm excited to get to them because, again, Jagged Icon, Speedy Boy, and Purveyor of Sick Burns in the 31st millennium. Unfortunately, uh, we got slogged through a couple of books the next of which is your favorite a thousand sons by graham mcnile oh so full disclosure the first time i tried to go through the heresy series i died out on this book yeah the thousand sons is our next book let's before we get into that let's let's wrap up here what are your favorite parts of fallen angels Okay, let's see. I like the initial landing on Diamat, where you're kind of thrown in with uh, with this these all these veterans, and they've got just great banter. You immediately get to know who they are. Uh, I don't feel like Nemiel is overbearing as a chaplain. He, you know, he kind of lets his people do their thing, and he trusts them to do it. 
I really like the Caliban arc just because like uh, we really see this darker element to the world. It gets very horrific when they're down in the bowels of the arcology. It's it's a, uh, in a lot of instances it's written like a uh, a horror story in a couple of places. I could have gone with a little more vulnerability. I think Dan Abnett talks about this in some of, some of his commentaries is Warhammer like Warhammer in general is very cool, but it's it's difficult when you're a superhuman space marine because you can do anything. That's why he prefers to write the human element because they are more vulnerable. My problem with like that uh, that initial fight with the reaver worms is that one of the reaver worms gets on uh, Zahariel's back and it's got this like this hard spike hitting the back of his armor. It just keeps bouncing off. It's like I could have dealt with some or I could have used some vulnerability there to make me feel like there are stakes. In a lot of these instances, I didn't really feel like they were in danger up until like there's the fight with the queen at the end uh in that little interaction or like the the fight with the uh even like all the the queens that are guarding the orbororos uh, it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of vulnerability to these guys because you know all our named characters basically live except for like one guy and he was just kind of a, a generic squatty basically uh zahariel and his buddy they both live Luther, we know that he's going to live. The Lion and Nemuel, they both live. Uh, nobody really feels like they're vulnerable throughout these stories. Did you get that too? I don't think I got that as much as you did, but I think that's a very fair critique. That kind of thing in this story didn't bother me as much, I guess. I, I should say that that element does not ruin... It, it Nothing... That does not bring down this story for me. It's the the little twists at the end that that bring the story down for me. Everything else I think is great. I think it's good, efficient storytelling up until the very end in both arcs. Yeah, I, I disagree a little bit there. I don't think that the Diamat arc is as efficient in storytelling as the Caliban arc, mostly because I think that the Diamat arc can end like a quarter of the way from where yeah, it is. And, you know, they, they could have been fighting over anything. It could have been psychic blenders for all we know. You know, it, it could have been just cargo containers full of kitchen appliances for all that it mattered in the end. And like I said, in the, in the, the greater spectrum of the story, I don't know that we ever see these siege engines again. I'm looking, I pulled up the wiki specifically for that point again. And the only thing the wiki says is that Perturaba will use them at the drop site massacre, but... Maybe that comes up in the first heretic because I think we go back to the drop site massacre there, but I don't remember it being brought up like in Fulgrim. I mean, it yeah. said they had big guns, but again, they like had that, big guns that are the Iron yeah, Warriors. that that describes that just just describes the Great Crusade altogether. I mean, yeah, they had just this amazing, outstanding weaponry the entire time. It making this whole story arc about these nameless kitchen appliances doesn't matter. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll go into what I like. Um, on the diamat side of things, I like the action scenes. I think the action scenes are done very well there. Um, 
except for when the lion shows up and saves everybody because they're just like the lion's here and everybody else is dead so <laughs> that's kind of a problem when you have a primarch show up and there's not another primarch to fight him i will say another part of the diamond arc that i liked is when nemuel is talking about what got him promoted to chaplain he tells this cool story about how you know, he's holding out, he and his squad are holding out against these green skins and this orc breaks his knee. And so he kicks its face in just out of spite. Great, great storyline. I freaking love that. Yeah, definitely. Um, on the Caliban side of this book, I really love how well done it just paints a picture of these guys are just getting hosed. You really learn to empathize and sympathize for these guys and why they turned against the Imperium. I think it's just done masterfully well. Um, again, I have some, some issues with, with both sides of these books, but overall I would say it's a very well-written book and kudos to Mike Lee for, for how well he executes this. It's just a couple of things. It's like, it just doesn't stick the landing on either arc. And honest to God, if they cut the epilogue out on for both of these storylines, because both of these twists come in the epilogue, cut that off right there, I think you got a great book. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, I was going to say, Mike Lee also wrote Wolf at the Door, which is probably my favorite story from Tales of Heresy. It it was just a really clean, well-written story, and it had a great ending. I mean, it, it's very sad. It's pretty depressing, but it, overall, it is an amazing short story. Yeah, I definitely agree. that I think Wolf at the Door was possibly the best one in Tales of Heresy, other than The Last Church. The Last Church... I don't want to talk about the last church. We already talked about the last church. I, I know we were kind of hard on it, but no, nah, I, I definitely like Wolf at the door best out of that story, mm -hmm. which I know I kind of rushed through blood games. I think blood games was a great story as well. Anyway, we're digressing. Basically we've, we've yeah, already covered all this. Yeah. We're way so, off here. Um, do you think we should, should wrap this up altogether? I, I feel like we covered everything. Yeah, I think so. I think that's good. Um, so next book, a Thousand Suns. Yeah, we're going to have a hobby roundtable in a couple of weeks. Look forward to that. I don't know what our topics are going to be yet. We'll have, to have we even out. made any plans for that? No, and of course we'll like send out the text. We're like, hey, what do you want to talk about? And I'll come up with like two things. And then right before we go to record, Manip will be like, let's talk about this. Well, in Manipal's <laughs> defense, everything he always comes up with at the 11th hour is always really good. Yeah, so... <laughs> I'll give him that. I just... I would like some feedback. Oh, and I'm sorry to anyone who keeps checking our Instagram page. I have sent out a text for, to these guys to be like, I need something for a hobby update. And I got like one response. I'll send you a hobby update. Okay. Well, there are two other people on our panel. Well, no, I've got, not, I'm, I'm, wor I'm working Paul, like I'm working Paul on terrain here. I've been cracking not, the whip there. Not to cut all this, not to bust anybody's balls. I'm joking mostly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the next book is A Thousand Sons by Graham McNeil. Um, of any book that's going to get me on the Graham McNeil hate train, this is the one. And it's not even because it's bad. It's because I get bored. He does not write 
humans is like like Dan Abnett will will write likable human like uh the the poet from the first couple of books uh Igneous Carcase I freaking love that guy I could listen to him babble on all day Graham McNeil writes the Remembrancers super dry and boring they're not particularly endearing we we will get into that in this book I can't wait to dig into this one but yeah, look forward to that. Definitely check it out. There are some interesting elements to it. I will say I like how the Thousand Sons are written, but that's that's for the next episode. Yeah. This is Warwick's Traitor Legion, so... Maybe, maybe. I haven't decided. I'm, I'm committing it's, you. It's going to come down to me, like, flipping a coin or something. It's going to be something dumb. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to share this to your buddies. You know, talk about it when you're at game night, please. Get us some traction out there. We really appreciate it. We like hearing back from you guys, so shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, we'll try to be better about posting links in our podcast bios or whatever. I know I was supposed to do that for the, the Ferex guys, but I was sick that week and I wasn't able to edit it in the way that I wanted to. I apologize for that. And check out our Twitter at legioncast, a Horus heresy podcast. Let us know what you have to say. Definitely like Send us them dank memes, folks. We love to see them. And again, I'm Warwick. Thanks for listening to us. If you made it this far, we really appreciate it. And have a good night. Thanks, everybody. Um, Now that I'm back and Warwick can't rip on my sign out, I will tell you all to march in fortune.